In Genesis chapter 48, beginning of verse 1, it says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh, and Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover... I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anchor, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that the resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. His archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts of the womb. And the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. It is important for us to recognize the blessings that God brings into our life. I think it's important for us to recognize them individually and within our single families. And I think it's important for us to recognize them as a church. I think it's important for us to recognize them as a community, as a nation. In fact, very early in the beginning of our nation, our forefathers agreed with that sentiment. It was very early in our history that we made it a formal celebration, a day to be set aside for recognizing what God was doing within our midst, within three years of our winning our independence. This was put forth by the Continental Congress. They resolved that it be recommended to the several states to appoint Thursday, the 9th of December, next to be a day of public and solemn thanksgiving to Almighty God for His mercies and of prayer and for the continuance of His favor and protection to these United States to beseech him that he would be graciously pleased to influence our public councils and bless them with wisdom from on high and unanimity, firmness, and success. There's our Continental Congress inviting God to meddle in our public affairs, if you can believe that. That's what they recommended. Now, at that time, I think Jefferson was the one that then made the proclamation. But I'm reminded of another place where Jefferson would say this, God gave us life and God gave us liberty Now keep in mind, Thomas Jefferson is the one that people usually go to for separation of church and state. 
I agree that there does need to be a separation there, but it does not mean that people of faith shouldn't be involved in politics or that our faith shouldn't influence our public way of doing things. And we'll see that that was what Jefferson must have had in mind as well, because Jefferson said, God gave us life and God gave us liberty. Can the liberty of a nation be secure when we have removed the conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that His justice cannot sleep forever. So our forefathers, not looking at it just as an individual level, but even at a national level, said that we needed to continue to recognize the blessings of God in our life if we're going to be able to continue to live underneath those blessings. And that's what I want to consider this morning. I want to consider living under God's blessings. We see Jacob at this time in his life blessing his children and speaking into their future and the blessing that they were to live under. Now, as we look through this passage, I want to point out for us this morning three truths, three truths that are reflected in God's blessings. Now, the first truth that we see reflected in God's blessing is we see that blessings reflect God's sovereignty. In other words, this is God carrying out his will in their lives. The blessings that God gives, He gives because He determines to give them and because He wants to give them. And so He's in control. That's what sovereignty means. Sovereignty just means who's in control. And it just means that God is in control of dealing out these blessings. Now, the way that we see this is maybe a little bit hidden if we hadn't already read the rest of the book of Genesis. And we see this in the fact of the way that Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. Joseph brings his sons before Jacob, his father, and he purposely takes the older son and puts him to his left, puts him to Jacob's right, so that when he reaches out, he would put his right hand on the oldest son and his left hand on the youngest son. And so he goes to an effort to make sure they're in the right place. And when Jacob doesn't do it the way that uh, Joseph wanted him to, he objects to it. You need to bless the older. But what we see happen is Jacob is equally determined. Rather than doing what Joseph wanted him to do, he puts his right hand on the youngest and his left on the oldest. Now, why is that important to Jacob? Well, if you remember when Jacob was in the womb, Jacob was in the womb and God came to Jacob's mom because she was concerned with all this activity in her stomach. Something might be wrong. And he tells her there are two within your womb, reveals to her she has twins. And he says, the older will serve the younger. And so when they're born... Esau comes out first. He's the older brother. Jacob comes out a close second, but second. Well, Jacob doesn't really like being the second born. And throughout his life, as he grows up, he tries to get that advantage of firstborn towards himself. He's going to make a deal with Esau when Esau is very hungry and get him to sell his birthright to him. And then when it comes time for their father to hand out the blessings, he tells Esau, go out and kill some game. Prepare it up that way that you know I like that meat and bring it in and feed me your meat so I can enjoy your meat and then I'm going to bless you. And Jacob finds out about it and his mom and they make a little plan, dress Jacob up and send him into the father to steal the blessing that was supposed to be for the firstborn. So that was always something very important to Jacob. And now Jacob has the opportunity to bless his kids and his grandkids and then he crosses his arms and blesses the younger. 
Now, what is the point in all this? What, what, what difference does it make? But the reason is because it points to God's sovereign decision. God came to Rachel before the boys were born, while they were still in her womb. And the book of Romans tells us that this is why God does this. And he says before they ever did anything good or bad, before they were even born, so that it was very clear that this is God's decision, God's choice, not based on anything that the boys have done or are going to do, but it's God's choice. He is blessing who He wants to blessing. And just to show you that, He's picking the younger one. And then we see it repeated here. Now it's the younger one again that's going to be blessed. Why? For no other reason than that's the way God wants it done. And that's exactly what the book of Romans, looking back on these decisions, tells us. In Romans chapter 9, beginning of verse 7, it says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now remember when we talked about that before. God had promised Abraham and Sarah a child that was going to end up turning into a great nation that would reach back out to the whole world. But He promised them a child and then He made them wait 25 years. Abraham was 75 when God gave him that promise. They would not have a child until he was 100, until he was well past the age of childbearing. About halfway through that time, they decided to take matters into their own hands. And Sarah gave Abraham... Hagar, her servant, and Abraham went into her and had a child with her, and they named him Ishmael. And Abraham at different times would even ask God to bless Ishmael. God says, no, that's not the one. He's not the child of the promise. You see, the New Testament points back to that and says Ishmael represents something. He represents human accomplishment. They just accomplished having a child through the natural way of things. A man and a woman came together and they produced an offspring. There's nothing supernatural about that. It's beautiful, but it's natural. But God says, that's not what I promised you. I promised you a miraculous son. And so he waited till Abraham and Sarah were 190 years, not 190 years, Abraham 100, Sarah 90 years old. And then when it was, the New Testament says their bodies as good as dead as far as having children, then God made it happen and they had a child. And that was Isaac. But see, that was all the promise. God fulfilling His promise to the children of Israel. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, if what, not through human accomplishment. It's through promise. Just believing the promise of God. This means, in verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise says. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, so now he skips forward a generation here, had conceived children by the one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, by taking the younger and making him preeminent, moving him to the place of the older, God is saying, I'm going to do it how I want to do it. And I'm going to bless who I want to bless, and I'm going to curse who I want to curse. It's through my sovereign choice. And you know what? Thank God it's that way. If it wasn't through God's sovereign choice, if it was left up to us to choose, there would be no choice. And we would all be condemned. We would all face what is duly deserved to us because of our sin and rebellion against God, which is an eternity without Him in the fires of hell. But God in His grace, God in His sovereign will, as Aaron was thankful for earlier, 
predestined. He chose. He made a decision. See, the Bible tells us that we're so corrupt that there's nothing in and out of ourselves that desires God unless God puts that desire there. We talk about having a free will, but it's not really free because we don't have a passion, a desire that is within us that would make us choose God. So we're not really free to choose God because our desires are corrupt until God does a work within our hearts to plant that desire within our hearts. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you're saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Even the faith that we get to exercise as we put our faith in Jesus Christ is a gift from God. It all comes from Him. When we respond and we reflect on the blessings of God in our life, we ought to be astounded by this tremendous grace that God has that He would bless us whom there's really no reason to bless. That God just in and of His own sovereign will and choice would say, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to bless you. You see, the blessings we get before God aren't because we earned them. They're not because we're good enough. We get them just because God wanted to. And just because He is good enough to do that. And because He loved us so much that He would send His Son to the cross to die in our place. And so we see the sovereignty of God in our blessings. So as we spend time this morning reflecting on the blessings that God has brought into our lives, it should never lead us to the point where we say, because I did this or because I accomplished this, then this is in my life. We should always reflect, as our forefathers did for our nation, that the tremendous ways that God has blessed us have just been because He is good enough to do it. He's in control. But then secondly, we also see that blessings reflect our character. Our forefathers recognized that when they were starting our nation. George Washington made this statement. He said, there exists in the economy and course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness, between duty and advantage, between the genuine maximums of an honest and magnanimous policy and the solid rewards of public prosperity and felicity. Since we ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. He says, If you want to be happy, you better be good. You better be virtuous. There's a pattern built right into creation that happiness and virtue just go together. There's this indissoluble union between the two. In fact, notice as he gets down toward the end of his statement, he says that no country can expect the blessings of God if they're going to live in ignorance of God's blessings or in ignorance of God. It's the same thing that the earlier Thomas Jefferson quote, Stated. He said, can the liberty that we receive from God be maintained when the conviction that God is the one that gave it to us is gone? Our liberty also will leave. The character of the nation would lead to the happiness of the nation. You know, we found that that's exactly what happened. America experienced prosperity like none other and rapidly. So much so that it became the envy of the world and the world took notice. At one point, there was a French guy named, uh, oh, was it de Tocqueville? Charles something to Tocqueville. He came to America for the goal of discovering the greatness of America. And he traveled the whole the, the nation. And he says, I looked at the seaports and it wasn't there. And I looked at the mountains. I looked at, and he just kind of describes what he saw as he went around America. He says, I looked in all these different places and it wasn't there. And then I found it. And he came to this conclusion. He said, America is great because America is good. The pulpits 
of the truth of God's word have lit this country aflame, and America is great because America is good. And then he made this other statement. He said, if America ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. And that's exactly what our forefathers were fearful of as well. That's what we see in these blessings that Jacob is handing out to his sons. The blessings are tied to the character of the individuals. That's what it says at the very end. After he hands out all of the blessings, it says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel in chapter 49, verse 28. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. In other words, the character that he sees within each of his sons is what he based his blessing upon. So it is so important what our character is in receiving the blessings of God. Now that's what we see as we see him unfolding. Before you even get to that statement made at the end, you're already well aware that that's what he's doing. Because he starts with Reuben. He says, look, you were my first. The peak of my strength is in you. But he says, it's not going to be you. See what he's doing is he's going to pick a head. And he says, it's not going to be Reuben because he defiled himself with my concubine. He defiled his father's bed. So his character is not such that the leadership is not going to be his, which should have rightfully been his by age, but no way. And then the next ones are Simeon and Levi. And he said, don't let my glory rest with them because they were the ones that destroyed a whole village of people after the way their sister was treated. And so he said, they're rash and they're violent. Don't associate me with them in that sense. And he gets to Judah and he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. That's exactly why Jesus is a descendant of the the tribe of Judah. The scepter is his. The kingdom is his. He said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. What do we see in Judah these latter days leading up to this point? Now, there's some things in Judah not to be proud of. That's for certain. But we also see within Judah that he stepped up. When it came to taking care of his younger brother that Jacob was afraid to send to Egypt, Judah stood up and said, basically, my life for his. I will lay down my life in in place to keep him safe. When they're confronted with Joseph and they don't know it's him yet and Joseph is going to keep the younger brother Benjamin and throw him into jail, Judah stands up and says, throw me into jail. Keep me in jail. Let Let him go home. When it goes on from there and they're getting Jacob and bringing him to Egypt with them, Judah is leading all the way. Judah seems to have stepped up into that role of really being a leader within the family and being a solid individual. And that's to whom God says, That's where the scepter will remain, upon Judah. And so all these blessings are blessings that he's handing out according to the character of the individual. That's the same thing that our forefathers recognized. If we're going to be a happy country, a blessed country, we need to be a virtuous country. We can't live our life as if God doesn't exist and then expect to receive his blessings. Patrick Henry said this, Bad man cannot make good citizens. It is impossible that a nation of infidels or idolaters should be a nation of free men. It is when a people forget God that tyrants forge their chains. Abraham Lincoln said, We have been a recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. And that's true. When you think about it, I remember a Christian comedian making this comment one time. He said, We broke free from the strongest nation of one century to become the strongest nation of the next. That is phenomenal. It says, but we have forgotten God. Abraham Lincoln was worried about that already at his time. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied, enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us 
then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray clemency and forgiveness upon us. William McKinley said the more profoundly we study this wonderful book, speaking, of course, of the Bible, and the more closely we observe its divine precepts, the better citizens we will become, and the higher will be our destiny as a nation. You see, your destiny is tied to your character. Lao Tzu, I think it is, he's kind of a contemporary, most believe, of Confucius back in the 6th century B.C. He said, pay pay attention to your thoughts. Because your thoughts become your words. Pay attention to your words because your words become your actions. Pay attention to your actions because your actions become your habits. And pay attention to your habits because your habits form your character. And pay attention to your character because it forms your destiny. And that's what we see in these blessings is that these people's character formed their destiny. God's not going to bless us with things that we're not suited for. If we're going to be prone to happiness, prosperity, then we need to be people that are virtuous that are strong in character. And that's what we've seen in the history of our nation. It's important to our forefathers because it was important to God. And those are the principles that are just built right into the process. Not only do we see in God's blessings that they reflect God's sovereignty, they reflect our character, but also God's blessing reflect hope for the future. And I'm going to skip up to a part of the passage that we actually didn't have time to read. But Joseph, as he is about ready to die... He also is looking forward to the future because he has a request for his brothers. Now his brothers aren't going to be around by the time the request is ready to be fulfilled because remember Israel is going to be kept in Egypt and be made to be slaves for 400 years. But God had promised them all the way back to Abraham that at the end of that 400 years, God would come in and deliver them in a mighty way. What do we see? We see Joseph says to his family, you've got to make me this promise. I'm about to die, but I want you to take me with you when you go. It's not going to be for over 400 years yet. But he says, when 400 years is around, I want you to take my bones and carry them with you back to the promised land. Don't leave me behind. Now, what does a dead guy care if he's left behind? In our culture, in our society, that's what most people would say. When we talk about, you know, whether you want cremation or or a burial or what do you want for a funeral, I've often heard people say, you know what, when I'm dead and gone, I don't care what you do with me. I'm gone. But you know what, I don't really think that's quite, that's taking it a little too far. When you die, your soul leaves your body and goes to be with God as you're a believer. If you're not, then it goes to be away from God. Your body is left behind, but it's still your body. It's still important. It's still important that it be treated with dignity and respect. In fact, when we bury it or cremate it, or I don't think that there's a real problem with either of those issues, and I've studied it out. If you want to know more about that, I'd be glad to share with you what I've found. But I don't, I don't think either one of them, they're both gonna, you're gonna end up dust either way. So I don't know that the faster way is any better or worse than the slower way. But here's the point. The whole idea of laying down your remains is that it's like planting it. You see, we're buried in the hope of a resurrection. That really should be our view. It's not a who cares what happens to that. It's a, actually should be a we can't wait until something happens to that. That's what our perspective should be. In 1 Corinthians in 15 it says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. 
There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see the point that God makes is that our bodies, even when our spirit leaves them, are still our bodies. And what, what do we do with that? We show honor and respect. We have funerals and memorial services. And whether it's cremated or just buried through that process, it ought to be seen the same. That what we're laying down here and putting in the earth is just a seed. We're planting a seed. And why are we planting a seed? Because we have a hope of the harvest. Because we're looking forward to the resurrection. Because even in our death, there's hope in Christ. There's life in Christ.